Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. For this podcast episode, I'm delighted to welcome David Arger onto the show, given he's been a brilliant long-term supporter of Liberia Bookshop since we opened. A respected linguist at Queen Mary, we launched his new brilliant book, Language Unlimited. And don't take my word for it, the book has a serious endorsement on the cover from none other than Noam Chomsky. So yeah, wonderful stuff. Just before that, I'm going to recommend a few books that are on the radar. Venus and Aphrodite is a new one from the awesome Bethany Hughes, in which she charts the early origins of this goddess, following the icon's cultural significance in Western art and the imagination. Gaia Vance, Transcendence. Really loving this new book from Gaia Vance, a truly remarkable survey of human development through cultural accumulation looking at key factors such as fire, beauty, language, and time. Now, Vance won the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books for her adventures in the Anthropocene, and we shall be talking to her soon for an upcoming episode, so keep an eye out for that. Lastly, Lydia Davis has a new collection of essays that range wide and far and will no doubt make for a smart Christmas present. But now, Language Unlimited with David Adger. Welcome to the Liberia podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, given you're an avid fan of Liberia and regular visitor, am, yep. buyer of books there, it's absolutely incredible to get to read your book, Language Unlimited. Um, tell us about the book. Why did you want to write this book? I think I wanted to write the book because I was feeling unsatisfied partly with what was already out there in terms of uh, of linguistics for the masses yeah. type thing. And uh and, you know, that was the initial motivation. But as I began to write it, I realized that there was uh, something which I think linguists take for granted, which is the the question of, you know, we have this incredible creative capacity with language. We can use it to do so much. And, uh, and there's a really deep mystery, which is how do we do that? Why is language so unlimited in the way that we use it? Uh, where does that come from, given we are limited beings? And I think that that question about... What, where does this creative capacity for language come from? That essentially kind of took over uh, as, and it became the argument of the book. Whereas, you know, I'd initially written it as a more like, okay, I want to, you know, I'm a professor. I should profess, mm. right? And <laughs> I should like say things about my discipline, which I totally love, uh, which will help other people understand it. But it kind of eventually turned itself more into this argument about what is this mysterious thing that underpins our creative ability with language? Okay. And to, to go straight into that, the universal grammar, universal language, it's innate according to your understanding. Or there is, an, there is something that is innate. There is a grammar. There's a, there's a syntax that could be described as innate. So I think like I, I, I often... I, I can't remember if I used the word innate in the I book. don't think you do. Sorry, so that's I, my term. <laughs> yeah, so I think that it's a dangerous word in some ways because, look, okay. there's so much that's innate. We human sure. beings, when we're born, we've not got the same brain as, like, my cat Lily, for example, right? Mm. She meows, we don't meow. I mean, there's just something about our brains. We're not born as blank slates. Mm. There's something, there's a structure to our brains. The real question is whether there's a special structure that's really specialized for language mm. or not. So there's stuff that's innate all through our brains, but what is the thing that enables 
we humans to do this kind of amazing creative use of language, mm. whereas other species don't have anything remotely like it. Mm. Even when we try and teach them, they can't pick it up. Uh, and, you know, I think I, I talk in one of the chapters in the book about how we get uh, AIs to do language. They do amazing stuff with translation and things like that, but they do it in a very different way than the mm. way we do it. So what is it about us? And I think the fact that there is something, I mean, those are basically the arguments that there is something about us that distinguishes us from other kinds of uh, creatures. Um, so what is that? And so it's not about innateness per se, mm -hmm. it's about specialization for this linguistic capacity that I think is the, is the thing I want to say in there. I think sometimes innateness, it feels like it's sort of, it's, it's a, it doesn't get you anywhere really yeah. as an argument, I think. Okay, sure, all right. Well, not innate, but I think uh, somebody like Chomsky would say that there is, it is almost veering towards the miraculous, a child's development and sudden, um, a, you know, this incredible ability to uh, learn language and become articulate at, yeah. at a very early age. And yeah. it's that kind of, you know, the, it, how, how could a child have the capacity at that at that age to acquire something as complex as language. Right. So I think that like, I mean, so Chomsky's point has always been that it seems really implausible that we do this through our just general intellectual skills. Yeah. You know, I mean, kids at the age when they can do fairly complex pieces of language are really useless at doing almost everything else. Yeah. So there is something, so that, that's the kind of intuitive argument. It's like, oh, wow. That's the, oh, wow argument. How the hell do they do that? And I think there, there is something to that argument, absolutely. So yes, I, I mean, I'm fairly convinced, and I try and make the argument throughout the book, that there is, uh, there's no way that we can just appeal to general intellectual schools and still capture the you know, amazing complexity of what we do when we just talk to each other, like you and I are talking to each other right now. So, and how do kids get from zero, apparently, <laughs> to that? So there must be some, I mean, when I say there must be, I'm pretty compelled by the arguments that say there's something mm. that's special about the human brain. It's set up in some sense for language, mm. not necessarily spoken language because sign languages are really, really similar in how they're acquired, in their complexity, in their structure. Um, and so I guess that like, you know, it's not really about speaking or signing per se. It's really about what our minds are like such that they allow us to do this kind of thing. Okay, could you talk a little bit further about that, develop that, because in your book it is quite interesting, and I, and I think we, we will talk about home signing in, in, in a little bit as an example of mm. how we can kind of further understand this sort of ability, incredible ability that we have. But it's also, you, you, you touch on it there, this whole idea of not uh, children, you, you know, abstracting or taking from, from the... the social the world that's around them which mm. they do anyway but it's imposing structures and, that, and that's yeah. the human uh, element that i found fascinating yeah that you talk about in it's the it's concepts we use concepts to understand the world but we also impose yeah. structure so i think this is actually a really key thing um i mean it's kind of funny uh, i just gave the reason my voice is a bit messy at the moment is i just gave a two-hour lecture to my first years and apparently last week, someone else was giving a lecture last week, and they said that their minds were a bit blown by the fact that, um, that the, the, the sounds they apparently heard were not actually the sounds that they heard inside their minds, in a sense. And I gave them this really great example, which I mm. use in the book, which is called the Fraser Spiral, mm. 
which is like when you, you see this thing and you could swear blind it's a spiral. You you know, put 50 quid in it, it's a spiral. But actually, if you trace the apparent whorls of the spiral, it's concentric circles. It's mm. just that it's organized in such a way that it tricks your visual systems. And you can't get away from that. Mm. The visual systems are structured so they just make you see the spiral. And I think that that's a very true fact about human cognition in general. What makes our cognition, about cognition in general, I'm sure ants see ant type things and humans see human yeah. type things. And it, language is one of those things. Our minds are structured so that, you know, even though when I speak to you, I'm saying word after word after word after word, actually what's going in, on inside your mind is that unconsciously you're structuring those words into clusters. They relate to each other in all sorts of complex way, ways. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like the threads behind a tapestry or something. They all connect in these fairly complex ways that you just have no idea about. Mm. So there is something really uh, about, I think there's a, an ex a way of explaining what goes on with language and with other aspects of human cognition, which says, actually, we are imposing much of the structure we see on reality. It gets a bit philosophical, right? Yeah. But like, I mean, it's part of our biological nature. We, we see certain things, we hear certain things, and language, I think, is like that. There's a there's a sense almost. Okay. I think I call it a sense of structure in the book. It's, a, it's like we perceive subconsciously this structure to sentences and that organizes how we gain meaning from the sounds that we hear and how we make sounds from the meanings we want to convey. Okay, okay. Now, get, uh, talking about this kind of background structure and I suppose understanding it a little bit better and, and actually proving that those systems are well, exist to some, mm. some extent. Um, you talk about this incredible phenomenon uh, that studied, I, th I think it was in the, in the States, and it, it, maybe in uh, Caltech or one of those institutions, and it's called home signing. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that in relation to this, this kind of... Because I, I think it does actually, in, in terms of grammar, in terms of structure, it does relate, it, it does allow us to almost prove yeah. this. So I wouldn't go as far as proving. Okay. I mean, like empirical science, you don't prove things, but I think you can be compelled or not compelled by the strength of the arguments. And I think, so it's Susan Golden Meadows work. She's at Chicago actually. Um, okay. And she's been working for many, many years on this amazing phenomenon where if you think about um, deaf kids, most profoundly deaf kids are born to hearing parents. Mm. So generally, uh, they don't get sign language when they're growing up. So they don't have any language for quite a bit of time. And Golden Meadows studied this amongst a number of kids in the Chicago area, but also has begun to work across the world, basically, looking at similar kinds of scenarios. And what I mean, the conclusion, she, she talks about the resilience of language in situations where you really don't have very much input. So okay. you've got these kids, they're seeing their parents kind of waving their hands around, they're not hearing anything. So they're not really getting any linguistic input. They're not getting any evidence that they should, for example, you know, if you say, you know, those cups, that they should take those cups to be somehow a coherent grammatical unit, which it is in English, say, but they don't get any evidence for that. So then her question was, well, they don't get any evidence for that, but what do they actually do? And then the argument that she's been making is that if you, if you look at the kinds of signs, the gestures that these kids make, 
They linguistify, if I can make up a word, they linguistify the gestures of their parents. They take those unstructured gestures by the parents and they turn them into something which is recognizable to linguists as grammar. Mm. So let's just take, you know, if I wanted to say that cup and, you know, I might just point, right? Mm. Just point at it. Mm. <laughs> that would gesture that cup. Mm. But, um, and I would, and I might want to say, give me a cup and then I'd make a cup type gesture with my hand. Mm. But it's really weird to, if I want to say that cup to point at the cup and then make a cup like gesture, mm. right? Just thinking mm. about it, that'd be a weird thing to do because yeah, sure, you've yeah. already identified the yeah, cup, yeah. right? But what these home sign kids do is they do exactly that. That is, they use the pointing gesture as though it's like the word that. They use the cup gesture, you know, kind of mm. as though it's a gesture for a cup, and they combine them into a unit. Two, yeah. And if you look at, um, if you statistically look at the gestures of the parents, they don't do that. Okay. I mean, they just don't do it at all. Okay. But the kids are doing it. So where are the kids getting that from? It's not from what they are experiencing. Yeah, so it yeah. has to come from somewhere else. It's not obvious that it would be something non-linguistic it would come from. Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. It, I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous to, to point at something and then make the sign for it when you could just point at it. That would be communicatively a reasonable thing to do. Economically, yeah. Econo well. But the kids don't do that. They, they turn it into, or they can at least, turn it into a unit like we see in English when uh -huh. you say, give me that cup, that cup is over there. I want that cup, not this cup. It's a chunk, right? So, yeah, it's, you yeah. know. so it's a really interesting question about why, about how, how kids do that. That's not on its own a total argument that sure. would make everyone totally convinced. There's all sorts of questions. I mean, are are these, you know, have these been properly analyzed? Are, you know, not, I mean, maybe there's some other reason why people put that and cup together in this way. But I, I actually find the whole the whole research program that Golden Meadow has been uh, working on, and now many other people as well, quite convincing that's, that there is stuff what the kid in what the children do that is not in what their parents are doing, and it looks like the stuff that you find in languages. Okay. Since they don't have any access to languages, it must be coming from inside them. Okay. So that I, I think that that's a really intriguing and interesting piece of evidence. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the many pieces of evidence that make me think that the perspective that says there is something linguistic about human beings and it's an interesting question what it is and we should try and find that out. Yeah. It's what makes that a really interesting research program. But it's, it's also what was fascinating uh, when she grouped Holmes. I think it was her who experimented on this. It might have been another um, uh, researchers, but when they grouped home signers together uh, yeah and they they were they had an, an incredible almost uncanny ability to communicate and develop their own language right so that's a, it's a different uh grouping okay. i mean that was what happened in the fairly famous case of the nicaraguan sign language so okay. there they took lots of whom when, when the revolution had happened in nicaragua they set up a school for the deaf okay and then they took lots of home signers from villages all over the place like deaf kids born to hearing parents who just use these kinds of gesture type systems, bit more sophisticated than gesture, but those kind of systems, but really didn't really have anyone to talk to. So they couldn't kind of enrich that in a sense. Yeah. It had to just come from them. Then they put them together. And what they find is that when you get the kids communicating with each other, they begin to enrich the system. So, you know, the complexity of actual language, I think is not just it certainly doesn't just come from yeah. inside, yeah, sure, right? Yeah. There's something which structures, that's what we talked about earlier on, the notion that there's 
there's, you know, we, we impose structure. Mm -hmm. So there's something which imposes structure on say signing or gesturing to make it more linguistic. But then the moment you want to begin to use that to say more complex stuff and you have someone else who's also doing it, mm -hmm. then you build a language out of that. Mm -hmm. So then you kind of negotiate with each other and all sorts of social questions and stuff come into mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. how you will begin to develop more complex stuff. You borrow okay. things from other people's signage and so on. And actually the Nicaraguan sign language stuff, I mean, Nicaraguan sign language is a fully fledged sign language. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's as complex as any other. As well, far the as researchers that. couldn't keep up with the, the development. Yeah, even. totally. I mean, yeah. It's so rich. So it's like a normal language. That's yeah. like how normal languages work. Yeah. And I suppose that underpins also your your, your central thesis and, and the the whole idea behind the book is, is that, of you know, this incredible creativity. Yeah. This is, you know, this is our, our most incredible, you know, creative tool, shall we say. Yeah, totally. I mean, I... I you know, I'm a linguist, so I would say it's yeah. the most important one, right? <laughs> but absolutely, I think like, uh, um, so So I think what really underlies all of that is uh, the notion that the, the structures that are in language are not just any old structures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could imagine that when I'm speaking, the words just one word, then another word, then another word, then another word, like a beads in a string. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty boring structure, right? But it's a structure of some sort. Language doesn't do that as far as we have been able to figure out what it does is it groups words into these hierarchical structures. And I think what was really, what's very important to the book and, you know, it's what linguists have been saying for decades and decades. I'm trying to say it in a maybe slightly different way is that the, the way that those hierarchies are built up is actually the way that nature in general efficiently builds complex structure or yeah. one of the ways. So, you know, if you look at, if, if you look at a fern in your garden, for example, you'll see that a fern leaf, they've called something else, I think, but anyway, a fern leaf is itself composed of many, many smaller things that look just exactly yes. the same. They are like smaller fern leaves. And if you look at them, they've got little tiny fern yeah. leaves in them, right? So that basically the, 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 the whole is similar to its parts mm. and the parts are similar to its whole. And, you know, everything from, you know, the whirling, this is basically fractals, right? Yeah. Everything basically from the whirling of galaxies to the way that lightning strikes to the structure of our lungs yeah. Yeah. all depends upon this notion that when that we have self-similarity in structure. And language has that same self-similarity. That is that, you know, within, if I say, you know, uh, um, my book about language Right. Well, that whole thing is a, is a phrase, my book about language, but inside it, it's got language, which itself is a phrase. I could say my book about the really interesting language I studied last week. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And there we see something which is called in linguistics, a nine phrase inside another thing, which is called in linguistics, a nine phrase. And we've got the same, it's like ferns. We've got the same yes. smaller things inside the larger things. And once you put something small inside something large and they're all the same type, you're away. Right. right? Yeah. So because then you've got an infinite potential. Pollinates. For, almost, yeah, yeah. It, it's just like, you know, you can just grow in this, using the same basic techniques. You just grow larger and larger and larger structures, mm -hmm. which in a sense contain themselves. So I think that this idea, I mean, I think that it actually exists in Chomsky's earliest works, this mm -hmm. notion that, you know, the, the language really has a kind of structure which is built on the basis of this principle of self-similarity. That I think is a really important idea. 
And I think that, you know, we can see it happening elsewhere in the natural world. So language, although it can do this incredible thing, we can use it in this incredible way. Actually, it's not mysterious because much of the universe is organized well, in this I, way. I was just thinking, you know, in terms of uh, human evolution, pattern recognition, I mean, surely there must be some sort of connection there. Or is that a leap too far? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't think it's the same thing at all, do I? Hmm. So pattern recognition, I mean... Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> not in the slightest. Uh, so we humans are good at recognizing patterns. Yeah. But which patterns do we recognize? Right. So, you know, if I give you a number and it goes like one, one, two, two, three, three, four, four, you've got a pattern yeah. and you'll extend that pattern, right? If I give you uh, 3.141579, mm-hmm. so that, <laughs> that's as far as I can remember pi, right? Um, but like, yeah. I mean, that's also a pattern. It's a well understood pattern. It's, you know, it's got maths to it, but mm-hmm. asking you as a human being to predict the next bit down, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't do that, right? Yeah, please don't ask. No, no. <laughs> but you need to, you need to, yeah, you need to get some Pythagoras out yeah, there and, sure. do, and figure it out. So there are different kinds of patterns. Some of those patterns okay. we humans can pick up on. Some of them are, are we can get by doing maths or whatever. Mm. Some of them are invisible to us in a sense. Okay. So, so the patterns, it's not just that there's a general pattern recognition thing. Mm. It's that we are sensitive to certain kinds of patterns. Yeah. And that goes back to what I said earlier on at the start. So the kind of patterns we're, we're sensitive to as linguistic beings is those linguistic patterns. Okay. So a sentence, bunch of words, one after the other, we don't see it like a bunch of words, one after the other. Grammatical rules don't pay attention to the third word in a sentence or something. It just doesn't happen. Um, that's because that's a pattern. It's a perfectly reasonable pattern, third word in, right? But it's a pattern we human beings cannot see using our linguistic sense. We can see it using our other senses, right. our mathematical sense or our yeah. artistic sense or whatever, but not our linguistic sense. And I think that there's some good evidence from neurolinguistics and other areas for that, but it all is part of that same basic notion. We impose the patterns and the patterns are special to language. Right, okay, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the difference, isn't it? Really, mm. the, the language is the imposing of those concepts or those structures. <clears throat> those structures, yeah, yeah. We impose particular kinds of structures okay. when it comes to language. And there's a really weird thing, which I don't talk about in the book really much, hardly at all, which is how do we know what is language? Mm. <laughs> like when we were a kid, and we're listening to all these noises around us. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, we know that children are sensitive to linguistic noises and not to non-linguistic noises. Mm. We can stick them like just newborns in brain scanning machines and we can play them coughs and musical notes and whistles and their yeah. brain does one thing and we can play them nonsense syllables okay. and their brain just does another thing. Right. So somehow our brains are sensitive to that, but it can't just be sounds because kids can do it with sign as well. Right. So there's something that we don't understand, which is how the hell do we know what counts as language okay. in order to begin to use our linguistic pattern recognition okay. skills as opposed to other ones? Okay. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. Uh, I, I certainly don't. <laughs> um, okay, well then on to the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is related to that, which is merge, this idea of merge. Mm. This is again, or this is you tell me. It's a hierarchical way of yeah. So, so 
ever since Chomsky, way back in 1950s, kind of did this slightly revolutionary thing in linguistics and told mm -hmm. all the old guys they weren't, they got it all wrong. <laughs> now he is the old guy, right? But like, I mean, yeah, he was telling yeah. that, yeah. Um, he's basically been pushing this notion that human language is, it's like a computational system, right? You know, like, like in the way that Alan Turing thought of yeah. computers, not like the Macs that I can see in front of me right now, yeah not directly like that. So it's not like you're, we're building a computer, but the kind of system that underlies everything in computer science also underlies what's going on in our minds with respect to language. That's, that was Chomsky's idea from yeah. way back when. Merge is like the very latest incarnation of that, which is meant to be, uh, and I think is, the, the kind of simplest computational device you could imagine that will give you all the things that language has, or at least grammar has, in terms of combining simple structures to make new structures in an unlimited hierarchical way. Yeah. That that's kind of what grammar's how grammar is structured. And merge is just the simplest way to do that. Okay. And uh, so Chomsky started uh, playing with this idea way back in the 90s. And so it's actually been going quite a long time by now. And I think that everyone agrees there is something like that, even people who kind of disagree with the chumps. I go too far. There are some people who definitely don't agree okay. with something like that. But um, many people agree that there's something like this. And then the debates come down to like, so how did it evolve, you know, rather than what it is. I'm okay. kind of interested in what it is, what it is. how we use it to explain the creativity of human language and also the diversity of actual human languages. I mean, I am a linguist, so yeah. I look at lots and lots and lots of different languages. And yeah. in the book, there's a wide yeah. range of languages, right? Yeah, uh, Gosh, it's, it's incredible. And, yeah. and I try to sort of show they're built on the same principles. Yeah. So that fundamentally there's a limited set of concepts, grammatical concepts that come into language, all human languages, and the structures of all human languages are Un underlyingly pretty similar to each other. Yeah. So even though, you know, Japanese looks like it's pronounced backwards from English or whatever, actually underlyingly it's the same principles okay. that you use to build languages. That's what kids come to learning a language with. Oh, well, and that's kind of what Merge does in a, in yeah. a lot of ways. It, it allows <laughs> this structure to be, I suppose, in, in the eyes of a linguist, it allows this structure to be bent and molded according it's Recursion. I think that's one of the words, yeah. you know, that ability to, I don't manipulate language almost. So, so recursion is just this, I mean, recursion is just this thing I said before, it's the self-similarity thing, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. merge gives you a way of doing that. Okay. Essentially creates a structure, which is like, you know, which is like, I do it with boxes in the book, but you can do it with trees. It doesn't really matter. It's yeah. like, you've got a smaller structure and it's inside a larger structure of the same type. Mm. And once you do that, you've got this unbounded capacity to build structure. And then the question is, what kind of structures are you building? Are you building, I mean, you know, so for human languages, you're building these hierarchies and they've got, they're nouny or they're verby or whatever, right? They've got these grammatical properties. Uh, but yeah, the, the crucial thing is that what kids can't do, I think, and there seems to be no evidence they can do this, is they can't just, for example, see, you know, Okay, let me give you an example that I give in the book. Mm. In English, you can say something like uh, David's cat. Okay. And you can also say David's friend's cat, yeah. right? So you can yeah. do one, David's cat, yeah. David's friend's cat. Now, uh, you can also say David's friend's mother's 
ant's cat. <laughs> David's friend's mother's ant's cat's tail. David's friend's mother's ant's cat's tail's tip. Right? So you can take the same structure and repeat it over and over again. Now you can imagine that that is just flat. Right? You've got David's friend's mother's bone. Right? Um, and if you did that, then you might think, okay, well, that's just a flat structure. Why couldn't kids just do that? So it's really interesting, which is that when when you actually look at how people what people say to kids, they never say things like David David's friends, yeah. mothers, cats, right? Basically, the most you get is two of these possessors: yeah. David's friends, cat. Yeah, it's about as complex as it gets. Yeah. But the kids don't learn that. Yeah, sure. I mean, they learn that you can multiply it out. Yeah. A flat structure will not predict you can multiply it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you, why wouldn't you just learn one? You can do one possessor, you can do two possessors. You never hear any more. So yeah. you're like, great, I've got the rules. <laughs> but actually, the moment you do merge, the moment you sort of say, well, this is one structure inside another structure of the same type. Yeah then you predict that you're just going to go on, be able to go on forever. Okay. So the kids somehow, it's, they can't learn this. Yeah. There's, not in, there's no input. So they have to get the right pattern in the absence of evidence. And they do get the right pattern because we all grew up being able to say these yeah. things. Yeah. So we need an explanation for that. And this notion that the kids come to it with an expectation they'll be using this merge type structure explains that fact. And there's many, many other facts along the same lines. Okay. So the really cool thing I think about merge is that it just explains our unbounded, our infinite, our limitless, our unlimited yep. capacity with language because it gives us this unlimited, this expectation that language will be unlimited effectively. But is it, correct me if I'm wrong, but is merge, is that not, purely syntax then your syntactical ability yeah. Yeah. why is it called merge and why is that kind of important because i'm not really sure if i'm clear on on that so i don't i mean Sorry. so not at all so syntax is the bit of language that is the grammar of language is just you know how you put yeah. words together to make bigger sentences and moreover how do you make sure you know what the bigger sentences mean yeah i mean when i'm speaking to you right now I'm organizing my words in such a way that they mean what I intend them, ideally, mm. to mean, right? <laughs> and that's that's because I'm grammatically organizing the words in a particular way that comes along with a special meaning. So we need something that does that. Why is it, you know, so we, syntax is kind of central mm. from that perspective mm. to explaining mm. how we can use language in this creative way. Mm. There's other bits of language. There's phonology, like the sounds of language. There's morphology, how you build words up. There's all that other stuff, right? Um, but And they might have their own special capacities. I, I kind of concentrate in this one on the syntax. Because right. I think that's where, for me, that's where the magic is. That's yeah. what allows you to connect meaning to sound over this infinite range. So so that that's why, you know, th that for me is what makes language unlimited. And merge is the core of the syntax because of what I just said Okay. earlier on so the argument excuse me the argument i gave about the possessors shows you need to be adding something into your learning yeah. that allows you to go off into infinity okay does that make sense now kind of yeah it's got a little bit kind of like uh yeah well <laughs> you know, I need to maybe you need a couple of glasses of wine to read <laughs> yeah. chapter nine with or something um okay the last thing quickly now i've noticed this in interviews with chomsky as well he, he, he declines to talk about literature or, you know, talk about it in, 
in relation to his work on linguistics. And I, I noticed that, it, you know, in your book as well, that, that was something that you avoided. Is that because it complicates or muddies the water, so to speak, or is it just not relevant to what you're trying to discover? So I think in my book, I do something which people who come from a kind of Chomsky background often don't do. So I do talk about how... The, this kind of theory, this kind of approach to language connects with social issues. Yeah, you do. Right. Okay, so I yeah. talk about like, you know, um, essentially the idea is that that merge does all the kind of digital stuff. Yeah. And that leaves a lot of language out there. Yeah. A, you know, a lot of continuous stuff, a lot of metaphorical thing, all that. Yeah. It leaves a lot of that untouched. Yeah. So you can use that to do other things in communication. Um, so I think sociolinguistics does that. So I talk quite a bit about mm. different ways that that happens within sociolinguistics. Um, I think literature is a bit similar, mm. right? So mm. if I, I remember a few years back examining a thesis by someone in Glasgow who had used minimalist syntax to analyze modern abstract poetry. Right. And he argued that it was... I actually won't even tell you what you argued. <laughs> um, but, uh, so you can use this method okay. to to sort of, you can ask the question of like, say, what is a poet who's messing all the words up? What yeah. are they doing? Yeah. Uh, when they're breaking all the rules, what kind of rules are they yeah. breaking? Yeah. Are they, you know, and you can ask, you can connect this kind of linguistics to that kind of question in literature, I think. Mm. In general, I think, uh, you know, you're right. Chomsky always says, oh, well, if you want to learn about human nature, don't do syntax, yeah. read Jane Austen, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I must not agree with that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. like, you know, I think that um, literature can provide you with a very different perspective on what the world is from yeah. the perspective that science I mean, you're an avid reader you. yourself of yeah, novels. Totally. And, yeah, so yeah it's totally, just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I buy a lot of books from your shop. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, but that's right. But does that feed, do you ever, do, you know, reading certain novels, experimental fiction or otherwise, or history, or, you know, certain, you know, how somebody writes in the 18th century as opposed to somebody writing now, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, is that... Is that relevant? Minorly. I mean, I, I, I Does wrote, it influence your creative thinking, I guess is what I'm trying to say, on, on your subject? Does it ever kind of, do you ever read Rabelais or somebody like that and go, wow, yeah, bang, he's got it? No. Okay. I don't think so. I, did, I mean, for me, like- Or he's got something, you know, there's- No, I, I mean, I do read, I mean, uh, I think we talked about this at some point when I wandered into the shop, like yeah. I really enjoyed Will Eve's Murmur novel. Yeah, Super, and that's yeah. an amazing novel, uh, and uh, it touches on many questions that are actually relevant yeah. in some sense. And so, but but when I read that, I was like, "Wow, this is great! I totally love this." And it is relevant to some of the more philosophical ends of the stuff I think about. But my work is a bit technical, right? Yeah, so sure. it doesn't really. Although I can appreciate it and appreciate the philosophical aspects of it. Yeah. It doesn't kind of feed back into my work. I, okay. I think one has to be a rounded human being, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't need everything to completely sure. interact. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cool. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I think that's it. Uh, thanks for Andrew. having me. Cheers. Thank you so much. Yeah. Marvelous as always to chat with David. And I gotta say his talk at Liberia with Lane Green from The Economist was one of the best. So informative. As always, check out secondhome.io for our full cultural program listings. See you next time.